Welcome back to Season A of Sashimi. For this episode, I interviewed Erin Tarpey, a head of marketing at Visual Lease, a software provider that helps companies stay compliant with lease accounting standards. Erin discussed her role as a marketer, the structure of her team, how she measures effectiveness of different marketing functions, her take on NPS, and many other things. She also shared a case study, Visual Lease's call to auction with 65% conversion rate. Enjoy. Erin, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Pleasure to be here. Before we start, maybe you can say a few words about yourself and Visual Lease. Sure. A little bit about me for starters. I have more than 15 years of experience building marketing teams in high-growth software companies. So that's really my specialty. My current company, Visual Lease, is my fifth client-side SaaS run in marketing. And my sweet spot, I like to refer to it as my sweet spot, would be startups that are kind of in that teenager-like stage. So When I say that, I mean they have some infrastructure in place and they're doing some things in a mature, more grown-up fashion as an organization, like a bigger company might, but they still have a lot of maturing to do with respect to their processes, their systems, their people, and and some of the related metrics that they're tracking. I really love that. That leaves a lot of of bandwidth to make an impact and also to make some strategic hires along with the pace of the growth of the companies that I've been working for. I lived in coastal central New Jersey on a personal note with my husband. Uh, we have a daughter. She's a junior at Boston University. And we also, we have a COVID puppy. We got a Westie and he's totally spoiled. Uh, but it's been, it's been a real joy for what has been a really challenging year and a half for a lot of us. So that's a little bit about me. With respect to the company I'm with now, it's called Visual Lease. And we provide easy to use software that helps companies manage and account for their leases and comply with the new lease accounting standards under the standards boards for accounting, which include FASB, GASB, and IFRS. And your listeners might not be familiar with those standards boards, but they are for the federal government, government entities, and then international entities. These are the boards that set the standards for what accountants need to adhere to. So we help support businesses in their journey to become compliant. And when I say it's a journey, it's not necessarily a nice to do, it's a need to do when it comes to compliance. And something that I think many people might not think about when they think about leases, for most organizations, leases are the second largest expense line item after headcount. So we're talking about a lot of money for a really huge addressable market. So our solution is providing this centralized repository for all those different lease types. So companies lease things like commercial real estate, people tend to think of that first, equipment, fleet. And uh, we act as a single system of record for all those teams that need to interact with that lease data. We streamline the cross-functional work that they do together to prepare for their audits. And in the process of doing so, we help them unlock savings potential from their lease portfolio and see things that previously they didn't have visibility to while we're reducing that compliance risk. And uh, we've been in business for about three decades. So we're kind of a startup that's a little longer in the tooth. And we have award-winning solutions. More than 800 organizations right now are, are using our platform. And we manage about half a million leases right now in that platform. And it's, I would say, a very sticky solution. Like once people put fintech item like this in place, it doesn't tend to move out of the equation. So we have a 98% retention rate. And uh, our mission, it's to help companies transform their lease accounting compliance requirements into financial opportunities. Well, let's talk about the client base. Who are the clients? Because it sounds like every single company in the world can benefit from this. Well, all of these organizations do need to get their leases on the balance sheet by the standards of those boards I was mentioning earlier, FASB, GASB, and IFRS. So it impacts public companies, it impacts private organizations, and also government entities. So um, things you would think about like municipalities, 
higher education, anyone that receives government funding uh, also has their own uh, standards to adhere to with respect to how they're accounting for their leases. So it's a really large addressable market. But I would say our solution is best suited for businesses that have at least 50 leases to manage. So it needs to be on the larger side. And I would say 100 and above would be more typically what we see. But we can and do manage businesses that have thousands of leases you know, under, under their line of sight, um, where, where there's a lot of complexity and a lot of dynamics in their uh, management of their leases. Leases are, especially commercial real estate leases, are changing all the time. And in particular, if you think about the last year and a half, the impacts the commercial real estate market has felt from the pandemic, it has really pulled focus on the need that businesses have just to have all of this centralized and under control so that they can take action on it when they need to. Uh, should something change to the landscape or their business? So that is uh, who we can serve. Um, in terms of like industries that we tend to do well with, I would say manufacturing, healthcare, business services, consumer goods and retail. And then, of course, as I mentioned before, uh, government entities. So we do have a B2G practice as well. From the size perspective, it sounds like it's middle market to enterprise. I think that's fair to say. That would be a good, I think, segue into you know, how we price the solution. Some businesses will do that by ARR. Employee count is another way I've seen it done at other software companies. At Visual Lease, we do it by the size of the lease portfolio. So we have two modules. We have the lease administration module, which is for the management of and centralization of all that lease data. And then we have the lease accounting module, uh, which helps companies get that lease data on the balance sheet to prepare for their audits. Yeah, so per seat per module is not our model. Our model is about the lease volume. So we charge a different amount for a commercial real estate lease versus a equipment lease or fleet or other form of lease, mainly due to the fact that the commercial real estate leases are the most complex. So they tend to create the most, let's just say, burn on the system and need for customer support engagement. So that's how we price it out. Do you typically lead with one of the solution, uh, lease administration, and, and then bring lease accounting, or usually they come together? That's a great question. The vast majority of our customers actually purchase both, and the platforms were built to work together as one. But it is fair to say that the origin of our business is in the lease administration arena. So our founder and CEO was the one to first take a look at the complexities of, in particular, commercial real estate to say, companies have taken all this time and energy to negotiate these very complex terms for their lease arrangements with their landlords. And then what was happening with these huge financial transactions is that these leases were going off in a drawer someplace, or they were decentralized, and they were really not visited again. So his the genesis of the business was really to think about bringing them all into a centralized system so that companies could manage all of that financial sort of overhead in a way that gave them tons of easy visibility to complex contracts at, at a click of a button. So that was the first portion of the solution to be introduced to the market. And then when the lease accounting standards became something that was foundational to, to what was going to be happening in the market, our founder and CEO, Mark Batesh, was actually tapped on the shoulder by the, uh, the FASB board and asked to help inform how the actual standard itself was created and, and structured. So we were very much on the inside track, if you will, to the creation of the actual standards themselves, which made Visual Lease as an application sort of ahead of the curve with respect to developing the functionality to support uh, making sure we could account for those leases under those three standards as, as they were like evolving and being introduced. So for the public companies, tipping point for that and, and the need to take action was in 2018. For the private market, 
the deadline is coming of December 15th of this year. So all of their disclosures that they need to file after that point have to be accounting for those leases on the balance sheet. And then for the government entities, the uh, timeline for that was June 15th of this year. So all their filings after the midway point of this year need to be compliant with the regulations. So I guess you could say that our solution, one of the differentiation points about it is that we're really, really strong at the contract management piece and sort of managing all the complexity of dynamic lease agreements, in particular commercial real estate ones, but we obviously can also handle equipment and other forms of leases that uh, companies have in, in place. And then we were on the inside track for the development of the, the lease accounting functionality as well. So the strongest lease management solution and then partnered with the lease accounting functionality to get that all ready and prepared for the audit to reduce risk for companies and to really take them on this journey. It's a, the first time for a very large market going through doing something like this. And it's, if they don't have a solution to help support putting it together, it can be extremely challenging. So you can think about this if you have like five leases in place or a handful, that's one thing. But when you have tens to hundreds to thousands of leases that you have to manage and account for, as these things have been changing over time and modified, it's a lot. And um, we're really here to help make that work a lot easier. And we have a, a lot of in-house expertise because of the decades of experience we have just in the category in general. So this regulatory requirement and deadlines that seems to be set for this year, did it create some tailwinds for you guys? A hundred percent. It was a very um, healthy and growing business prior to the compliance regulations coming into the market. And I can tell you honestly, as a marketer, I've never had the benefit of having an external driver bringing you know, an audience into the market with a need to do like a compliance deadline. The company grew exponentially in 2018 when public companies needed to get their leases on the balance sheet. The board provided a little bit of a delay for the private companies due in large part to the pandemic. So they were given a 12-month reprieve to sort of get ready. But now the private companies, as I mentioned earlier, December 15th, their disclosures post that date this year will need to be compliant with the lease accounting standards. But due in, in large part to the compliance piece of our business, um, we've been able to be on the Inc. 5000 in the top 20% in terms of high growth, which as you know, is, look, is a three-year look back at percentage growth you know, year over year. Uh, in revenues. So yes, that's been a huge driver to you know the scaling of the business. It's certainly not the end of the line for us. We have plenty of other new product innovations that we're thinking about for the horizon. But the market of today is the lease accounting compliance market. I'm wondering if you can share the average price of the solution. We actually don't disclose that. As a private company, we, mm-hmm. we don't necessarily share our ADS or average deal size. I will say we are not an entry-level solution. Based on our lineage and the functionality, how robust and yet flexible the solution set is, so it can fit within any business's needs, I would say we're we're not the upstart in the market. We provide a very, very high level of customer success support, which is kind of unusual in our category. Some of the other players we know tend to charge for that. Let's name and shame them. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> uh, but per, we don't do that per engagement. You know, we have an all-inclusive pricing model and a multi-tiered surround support. Because this work is complex and many of the audiences that are heading into it for the first time are uneducated, that's a requirement. And um, in fact, when the business was growing really quickly in 2018, there were a couple of incidences where you know we had to say that we couldn't take an account that was very interested in, in doing business with us because we didn't feel like we could provide it at that point with the level of service that has become a marker of our brand and our 
commitment. I'm really proud of that about this business. But I will say we this is prior to getting external funding to really grow this thing at, at a faster clip and make sure that you know we can capitalize on the opportunity, which is a huge one for the next 18 to 24 months. So now as we established what company does and your uh, market in general, let's talk marketing. Sure. So what's your objective as a head of marketing at Visualize? This is a question I get a lot. I like to break it into a few areas. The first one is brand. We need to establish Visual Lease as the leader in this market. There are a couple of other players that I would consider competition, but we want to obviously capture the greatest market share, which means we have to apply brand and thought leadership to that to make sure that an uneducated market learns more about the process of lease accounting compliance and and the type of partner they want to work with. The second for me would be demand generation, so driving demand on pace with our monthly goals. Visual Lease is a very metrics-driven across all functional areas of the company. So it's not just in the go-to-market arena, but keeping pace with what we need to deliver in the pipeline to help us get that new logo acquisition on pace with our annual plan is a big part of our responsibility. And then I would say third, the connecting current and prospective customers uh, to our sales process. So the sales enablement. So it's not just about uh, initiation of the contact or the inquiry or the interest into our company. It's the tools that we provide throughout the selling process and then even post the selling process to kind of surprise and delight our customers and, and keep them engaged and happy and seeing value uh, out of their relationship with visual lease. And those to me are, are the top that my team is focused on. But I will add one other thing into the mix and, and only in that this is a high growth company and something that I don't believe all organizations think of marketing as being tagged to or responsible for, but we do actually play a pretty heavy hand in supporting internal and external communications that are required to attract and retain best fit talent. Being able to make this all happen, scale and continue to achieve double digit revenue growth year over year really requires the right people and making sure we have the right talent and seat to be able to scale the company on pace with those goals. But also that as we grow at a really fast clip, People are brought on board. They understand not just the mission, the vision, the values, but how they contribute to the macro goals of the business. And marketing does play a pretty heavy hand in supporting those types of communications and that sort of drumbeat in the business to make sure when you have a high percentage of new joiners that they're all brought along for that. And they're all plugged into how they can impact the company's overall delivery year over year as we have some pretty you know aggressive growth goals to achieve together. How is your team structured? Today, my team uh, is around 16 people poised to grow. In the past, I've overseen teams of over 100 people, depending on the company. They didn't start out at 100 people. They, it's being a part of high growth environments that, that evolved over time. But today, my team has five, what I would refer to as functional breaks. We have a brand and corp comm group. That's probably the smallest team within uh, product marketing. We have demand generation team that is broken out by customer and by new logo acquisition. And then we have creative services. Creative services is sort of an in-house tiny agency. So think of that as you know designers, developers, uh, content writers that can fill a variety of different content needs. We do also use outside external third-party service providers for things like the brand direction, but the creative services team in-house is very much about very quick execution when we need to make changes, which are pretty much a constant in the world of software. And then the fifth group is a newer one to us. This is uh, marketing operations. So as we've evolved and taken on new tech stack that needs to be kind of managed and optimized and frankly, you know, tweaked from the origins of when some of these things were set up to make sure that we can continue to scale 
we have a, a small marketing operations group that handles both the management of the tech stack, but also helps facilitate the types of reports that we're looking for at the intervals that we want them so that we can you know, keep track of all of our goals across each of these functional areas of marketing and how they're contributing to the, the macro goals for the business. How do you measure the effectiveness of these groups? And maybe tell us a little bit more what exactly they do day to day. Sure. I can start with the brand and corpcom group. So with respect to the brand, one of the metrics that we keep a really close eye on would be uh, there's a number of data markers, let's just call them that, uh, regarding the website. So growth in traffic over time, conversions from direct traffic and organic traffic to the corporate property. This group is also responsible for our social media strategy. So growth in terms of our strategy against the followers of our corporate social media handles are all monitored here. The, um, this small group also covers public relations. So in public relations, we set goals of the target media outlets that we want to infiltrate and the number of hits and references we want within those media outlets. There are bylines, goals against byline production. We produce proprietary research. So we have goals around that. And we also have goals around award submissions. So one of the important things to do in a high growth business is to document that growth and not just say, hey, we're growing really quickly, but to get third-party award providers to recognize your company in a few different vectors. So that should be by the growth of the business, the employment brands, the services you offer, and then obviously to try and secure awards for the solution and the innovations within the solution so that you can promote the uh, the fact that it's not just you saying your company is fantastic, but you've been validated by Deloitte, by by Inc., you know, by some of these um, organizations that are, are looking into employment brand and asking your employees about their experience working there and, and their engagement level. So all of that is kind of bucketed into the brand and corpcom team in terms of like how we're monitoring you know, what success looks like. With respect to internal communications, we have some pretty lightweight goals at this point, given our size around employee engagement with our internal communication tools. So we, we have an intranet that as we've scaled and it's been really valuable, uh, frankly, during the pandemic, you know, as everyone's been working remote to bring everyone together in sort of like a virtual water cooler where they can find all the things that they need, whether, you know, it's documents or policies or access points to key technologies that they're using. So that's the brand and uh, corporate communications group. In the product marketing team, I don't think there's anything here that would shock or surprise you with respect to what they're responsible for. As I mentioned, they're broken out by prospect and customer communication. So new logo acquisition versus cross-sell, upsell, and ongoing communications with existing customers. So for the new logo product marketers, we are closely monitoring you know, pipeline leads, opportunities, close one business, average deal size. Can we sell to value? and uh, secure the ADS that we're looking for from customers. So those metrics are all very closely tied to the product marketers. And in the um, customer portion of this, so where we're communicating with our existing install base of more than 800 businesses at this point, there's several things that we look at. We look at net promoter score. So this team, if you're familiar with that, handles the communications with customers uh, on a routine basis to check in on their their health, their sentiment. So net promoter score is one of them. Our cross-sell attach rates, our upsell revenue, retention rate is something we watch closely and set goals against year over year. And then lastly, and I think one of the most important things for marketing is the creation of customer advocacy artifacts. So things like video testimonials, reviews on software sites, 
case studies, like all of the the places where as a as a smaller brand in the market and not, you know, sort of the Starbucks of the equation, we really rely heavily on getting the marquee customers that we have, like Allbirds and Indeed and, you know, big brands you would know, telling their story about their working relationship with us. And that takes a lot of work and we need to set goals in order to make sure that we achieve uh, everything that we need there so we can use it in our promotional materials, but also in the active selling cycle and also for references and things like that. In demand generation, is pretty straightforward. I mean, we have monthly goals against leads and opportunities. They come in three different channels for us. We have marketing generated, sales generated, and then we have a pretty strong alliance partner channel that delivers leads and opportunities into our company. If you can think about us helping with audits and you know financial management and preparation for that, we have a lot of alliance partners that fall into the consultancy or accounting arenas where you know they're already working with customers that have complex needs around preparing for their audit. And we tend to get referrals and um, opportunities through that channel as well. But we have monthly goals. And then obviously, they span out to annual goals of the business that are tied to our operational plan and the revenue returns that we need from new logo business. We're not, I would say, mature enough or large enough to have the same discipline on the customer selling side just yet. I would say it's more sophisticated on the demand generation side. And then creative services, this is a little harder. Typically, the goals here are around timeliness milestones. So certain key projects that need to be delivered by a certain point in time in order for us to consider it successful and also on budget. And I would say we've also set a bit of a goal around revision caps. So if you're going to be producing an asset through your own internal agency of creative services resources, you don't want to have like 16 passes to get it right. You don't want that team to maybe one or two would be a good goal to set, you know, so that you make sure that you're driving quality from the production in that house. And then in marketing operations, because it's way too new to our organization to speak to this as though it's actually happening, uh, I would say that this person and the counterpart that we'll be hiring will will be tagged to the reporting deliverables that we need at certain intervals, making sure those things are tight, that they're happening on time. And then I would say the MarTech stack negotiations and renewals, which is a big part of that work as well. And the more things that you introduce into a business, the more things you need to monitor, right? Are they being effective for you over time? Do you need to change? Is Is that tech stack that you picked for one function three years ago still fit the needs of a much larger business? You know, when do you upgrade? There's a lot of like, kind of decision points as you're getting closer to your renewals for your MarTech stack that we expect the marketing operations personnel will, will help us with as we're trying to mature in this area a bit for the future. I have a question on the product marketing. You mentioned the NPS score, so mm-hmm. you, you track it closely. Can you share it or it's in another area that you don't want to touch? <laughs> it's a really great question. You asked me two questions. I can answer for you, but I can't. I'll put it that way. I've been doing NPS, gosh, this is probably my fourth company out of the five software companies I've been embedded in that perform NPS surveys with their install base. I think it's really a great process. And I'm sure you found that a lot of VC companies actually could sometimes perform their own uh, NPS when they're considering investment targets and things like that. Um, So it's really important to have the discipline in place. But my guiding principle about how to use this is it's very much an internal metric. It's just meant for you to look at your business vis-a-vis yourself. Not necessarily compare, you know, your NPS to another company type or industry. Like I've worked at businesses that have had negative NPS, and for the line of work that they're in, that's considered fairly common. That's not the case here <laughs> at all. But it's not something that we share externally because it's it's really meant for us to stay very close to customer health, and we have a very robust follow up strategy for the different 
forms of NPS responses. So if you're familiar with how NPS works, there are promoters, uh, detractors, and kind of like the neutrals in the equation. And uh, we have a different communication follow-up strategy depending on how our customers are responding to their their latest NPS survey that helps us just stay embedded with them and on top of what their needs might be. And also it surfaces opportunities to do a couple of things, right? The customer advocacy. So like we can see who's really in a great state of mind and why, and we can approach them to work with us in a deeper capacity. If we have a joint media opportunity or for an upcoming educational webinar where we're looking for a customer perspective, that's one piece. But it also can surface cross-sell or upsell opportunities, right? If they start talking about, hey, I'd like to integrate this with my GL and my life would be even better. It's just a, a terrific way for us to see that there's additional opportunity at that organization. And sometimes we get responses from like newer joiners too, who don't have training and it can surface the need to like get in there and show them you know, how to use the application or to have send them links to things that will help them become you know, more effective users. So it, it's actually the wins for NPS extends throughout the business. It's really a, it's a cross-company initiative. And in our landscape, it's run by centralized business operations team which is, has really been kind of game change for us. Very helpful. Your solution is very sticky. And I'm just even curious how important is NPS from the perspective of renewal of client contract? Because it seems like you have very high retention. It's uh, almost mission-critical product. Mm-hmm. So NPS is more of the improvement of the product versus retaining the clients, right? Because it doesn't look like they can just switch very easily. Sometimes, to your point, it definitely does service like product innovation possibilities. But you know, sometimes customers have complaints about the platform, and it's they're really like training issues. The platform can accomplish these things; they're unaware of how to do it. With a little additional support or an extra call, sometimes we can take a, an NPS score that is like not in an eight, nine, or ten range and get it there in the next wave just by solving what is a relatively small challenge is the customer just hasn't either figured out how to self-administer out of it or gotten support from us or reached out or put a ticket in or or done the things where we could be aware of it. So the NPS kind of serves as a belt and suspenders for some of the ticketing items too that come in where people are just frustrated. They don't take the time to put in a ticket, but the solution can help them solve their challenge today. It's not necessarily a product gap. It's a need for us to understand like where they, they might need us to just like reach out and help support them a little bit. Um, so that can happen too, for sure. We get product uh, ideas that come through that as well, through the NPS. And uh, our program is, you know, we really focus on getting statistically reliable data too. So we, we do a multi-touch outreach effort to make sure that we're getting a different a span of personas that are completing it too. So it's not just like the power users who are completing it, but it's also the people who are evaluating the solution and maybe pulling higher level data out of it or overseeing teams of people who are using it. And maybe the question to marketing operations team, what tech stock do you guys use? Sure. I guess I would start top down on this one. We are a HubSpot shop with integration to Salesforce. We do have a bunch of other solutions in the midst. One of them is Drift. It's a kind of a ginned up chatbot with functionality that can help support doing ABM a little bit better, which we have been appreciating the value of recently. Uh, we use Gong. Gong records product demonstrations, allows us to, you know, kind of, it helps train people as well, whether they're in sales or marketing positions, which is really critical for a high growth business where you have a lot of new joiners who, you know, need to learn and be immersed and, you know, hear customer questions and that whole interactive dialogue can be really helpful to training employees. Connected with Gong is a tool called Outreach. 
outreach is for sequences. So when you have, we call them sales development reps, they can go by many different names, BDRs, et cetera. When you have those types of teams, marketing provides support and air cover in their one-to-one communications to certain types of leads that come in. And that cadence is maintained in outreach. Uh, and it kind of triggers them to take actions to make calls or also to launch particular emails based on where they are in the sales cycle. For our intranet, we use a solution called Simpler. We did not opt to build our intranet in SharePoint or anything like that. We kind of went with an off-the-shelf solution, which has been totally uh, sufficient for a company our size and you know provides pretty much exactly what we need for this point in scale. And then we use a solution called Predictive Insights. I'm not really sure if you've heard of this before. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the data from Predictive Insights is helping to inform our ABM strategy. So the simplest way to think about it is it it takes a look at who you've had success with selling to previously, and it comes up with a mirror image of those types of companies who you may not be working with today, but would be really fertile prospects for you to go after for the future. And it also overlays some of their current intent data. So what are the those companies' behaviors uh, in search or on your website, what is indicating that they might be a little lower in the funnel point in time? So it's a combination of those two data sets that helps us uh, kind of define our target list for account-based marketing. Which one of these solutions that we just described is your most favorite one? The one that's most mission critical to us would be the HubSpot connection yeah. to Salesforce because this is how we create our rules of the road for how we do our reporting and all of our dashboarding from one system to the other is today managed in Salesforce. All of our board reporting, I mean, that's kind of like the lifeblood of also how we do modeling for the future based on historical performance. So I would say the HubSpot Salesforce, that's the core. And we discussed that there is a case study that you kindly agreed to share with our listeners. Could you please tell us a little bit about it? Sure. We have an uneducated audience, right? So we've got a a large population of people who have not yet done this thing that's kind of like complicated and it's looming and it's out there on the horizon and they don't know what they don't know about, you know, how to approach it. So we've taken sort of a, a diversified approach to different calls to action, which has been effective for our business. So I think a lot of software companies lean into, you know, view demo, request pricing, like, see product, see product, see product, which I'm not against. Don't get me wrong. I love to get a lead that is someone who wants to see product or talk to someone in sales or you know figure out what our pricing model looks like. But we recognized that we needed to do a couple things. We needed to give prospects who might be a little unsure of what to do a different path into our business. So we began a call to action that was consult with an expert. This is a non-sales engagement. This is You're not even talking to someone who's sitting in a selling seat. We're offering up our CPAs and lease accounting experts, and you can ask your questions. You can get a little further into describing what your use case is, your needs, what might be appropriate for you. And in some cases, visual lease is appropriate for them. In some cases, it might not be. And it's a really kind of like soft, low barrier way for a prospect to just get a little more information without feeling like they're going to get into an active selling situation. And for us, it's worked out well in terms of just being seen as that thought leader and that the person that wants to support them partnering with the right provider for their company. So the conversion rates for the consult with an expert to close one sales are in the neighborhood of around 65%. Ooh. So it's pretty high, right? So you would, you'd be surprised to think that you know, you've got a pretty soft call to action, theoretically speaking. Like You're getting a little bit of counsel, you're hopefully learning a little bit and uh, you know, able to bounce some ideas off someone who's done this before 
and can support you know learning more about what you need. But that intelligence is often used to parlay into, you know, we have the solution set that can help you address these things that you need to do. So that is one example. And then the other call to action that I think is on the opposite end of the spectrum is instead of having a request a bespoke demo time or request pricing, or I want to schedule a time to talk to a salesperson about my specific account, we've been hosting a, a daily product tour. So we are in the height of our market. So this allows prospects to just schedule this on their own time. They know any given day, they can get a quick peek into the product. They don't necessarily have to go into a heavy sales engagement. They can just get a little bit of an orientation to the tool. And both of these tools, while very different in terms of like their use case, have proven to be very effective for us because the prospects who register for the daily tour and show up are converting at a high percentage, not as high as the consult with an expert, but higher in some cases than some of our other CTAs. And we've had actually a great deal of success with the people who register for the product tour are unable to attend because it's, it's a pretty low barrier for entry for them to be there, right? It happens every single day. So if they miss that one, they know they can go to the next one. We've actually seen a good deal of success in having our SDR team reach out to them to schedule something just for their business. So we know the need is there. There's some sort of project looming and us able to be proactive and take a look at the registration list and understand like who's going to be attending has put our sales reps in a position to just you know do a little homework in advance of you know, these engagements, even if it's you know for a one to a few engagement like the daily tour tends to be. So I think mixing it up with respect to the CTAs has proven to be effective for us and giving us like a few different paths to start your conversation with the company, especially with an enterprise sale, right? You just you're not going to move right to like take a look at the product and let's sign the contract tomorrow. It's a conversation. It's an evolution. And there are a number of different stakeholders that we kind of have to get on our side in these businesses. It's not just one buyer because of the different parties that are using the solution set. So that's another reason why providing different points of entry for a call to action has been, I think, effective for us. What other uh, SaaS companies do you think would benefit from this type of uh, solution? And by solution, I mean, ask the expert and these uh, daily presentations. Anyone with very specific technical software? I think it's less so about the, how technical the software is. It's more about how educated the market might be on the need for the solution that is the driver in our instance. So if you have a product where the audience doesn't necessarily know how to do the thing that it's there to help them achieve, and they need literally a bit of like education and grounding in what's taking place in the landscape overall, this would be an effective tool to be able to say, we're not going to try and sell you software, but if you want to talk to someone who is an expert in what you need to do next and has mm-hmm. done this at a, multiple different companies, has managed leases. In some cases, we have people on staff who have who come from the management of large lease portfolios on the client side that are now working for our company and have like walked a mile in these shoes. And it's provided a lot of like authenticity to our commitment to helping understand what yeah. they're trying to accomplish as opposed to just like pushing functionality. Right. It does this, it does this, which is different than XYZ company that does Y. So I think if you have an uneducated audience and you're trying to build like that kind of confidence in how you can help them with the subject matter, not just like provide a solution that solves. I think, you know, in our case it works really well because we have a very strong and well-regarded support commitment. So that's like part of our DNA at the business. So if you're coming from a business that has that as well, I, I think it would work effectively. Well, that's fantastic. Erin, thank you very much for being on the podcast. 